We all face similar challenges when trading creativity for money. Around this invisible campfire, we'll listen to the kind and kindred voices of women in design and learn the stories below the fold. I'm Erin Anaker, a people enthusiast at my nimble little business, Pixology. Raquel Rodriguez is a librarian turned designer and letterer whose love affair for language, words, and type started from a very young age and continues to this day. But all of that is to say that I like libraries. I love being able to go in and just walk around and find all kinds of things, even if I didn't have a particular title in mind. She also cares very deeply about her local community, so much so that she started a podcast in order to get connected. More on that towards the end. In the meantime, librarian enjoy. Designer, what parallels do you see between the two? I think when I first started working as a designer, I definitely noticed a lot of the skills I had as a reference librarian in asking people about their information need. That's what we would call it in the library world. <laughs> Come to me and you're, you need some kind of information and I'm trying to help you figure out exactly what it is and how you can get to it was not totally unlike how I would talk to a client or a prospective client about their design need and figuring out exactly what it is and then how I can help them arrive at that, of having that need fulfilled. So being able to talk to people about what they need and want and sort of the parameters around how they're trying to get to that mm-hmm. definitely on a very practical level came from my library background for sure. And then on a more sort of conceptual level, just dealing with the organization of information and the retrieval of information all the time definitely also has lent itself in applications when I'm creating a website. You know, Mm -hmm. that is obviously a very big part of when you are helping someone make a new website or redesign their site. When did you discover design and at what point did you decide to pursue it? I guess design by that name, I actually didn't discover it until fairly late in my, even in my life, I would say. I didn't really know what graphic design was growing up, even though I was very, I was always involved in the arts, in, in visual art, but I had no idea what graphic design was. And I didn't really figure it out until just from being in a library and looking at books related to lettering and typography, which is something that I knew that I liked, but I didn't know that those were things part of this larger design slash art world. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of how I figured out, oh, there's something called graphic design and you can go to school. (laughs) It's a, you know, it's a field of study if you want to make it that and then be able to practice it. So that's, you know, I don't remember there being a, a real specific sort of aha, it kind of developed a lot slower over time and just figuring out, oh, I like, I like to help people make sense of things. That's why part of why I became a librarian. But then also I think that's a big part of what designers do is you're, right. you're helping someone make sense of, of something, whatever it is. And so that it was just a very different way of applying a different skill to it. So in addition to the things that you just listed, what else attracted you to the library and being a librarian and helping people find information? It's funny. I grew up essentially in public libraries. My mom during the summer would always send me and my siblings to the library, even though we weren't in school anymore and she had to work. 
I mean, both my parents worked during the day, so they weren't at home with us, you know, all day. And we never really had the finances to go to summer camp or anything like that. So, so we wouldn't just be at home watching TV all day. She would say, you have to go to the library today and check some books out. And then I want to see you reading them at home. And so I spent a lot of time in public libraries growing up because of that. And then I happened to work in a library when I was an undergraduate. My work-study job was in the library. And what I actually studied as an undergraduate, I was an English and African-American studies major. So I was in the library for the work I was being paid for. And then I was in the library for the schoolwork I had to do. So I was just in it all the time. Wow. (laughs) But I still didn't know then, similar to with graphic design, I just didn't know that a being a professional librarian was something that you would pers- could pursue. You know, obviously I saw people working in the libraries, but I really didn't know who was a librarian and who wasn't and what the difference was. Right. But but all of that is to say that I like libraries. I love being able to go in and just walk around and find all kinds of things, even if I didn't have a particular title in mind. Mm-hmm. I still always love going into libraries <laughs> just to see what that particular library happens to have. Yeah, it's kind of a serendipitous space. Sure, yeah. Because even, right, all public libraries are not the same. They're public, but they serve different publics. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, and they're curated for yeah. those audiences, and they're curated yep. for the preferences of those in charge of curation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always just appreciated that I could go to this place and get things for free and take them home and just have to return them, you know? (laughs) And I would get all kinds of, that's where I started getting like all kinds of art books and how to draw cartoons and how to, you know, like all those how to draw. I remember there was tons of those kinds Mm -hmm. of books in the public library. I gobbled Um, those up. Yeah. (laughs) And they're great. I mean, yeah. Uh, Otherwise, can you imagine trying to buy all of those things and to use for like, 10 minutes. A few week- yeah, a few weekends. And then, you know, what are you going to do with it? So, yeah, so I just really appreciated it. And then once I met someone as an adult right out of college who was a librarian, and he said to me, he was my supervisor at the time, he said, have you ever thought of being a librarian? And I was just like, what are you talking about? I don't, <laughs> isn't that what I do? I work in the library. Um, but he explained that, no, you actually you get a master's degree in library science and then you're a professional librarian and that's how you pursue that field. And Mm. so it's just because someone asked me, otherwise I don't know that I would have so easily figured it out. i never knew librarians growing up. I never knew graphic designers growing up, Yeah, you know, in, in the way where you can ask someone sort of, what do you do? And they, and it's just really clear, like this is their job and this is what they get paid for. It's kind of neat that this space that allows for happening upon things introduced you to the next step sure. in your life. Yeah. And that Definitely. that was kind of what you, why you fell in love with it. And then it allowed you to, to use that. Definitely. Yep. So given your love for this public space and your love for the library in general, why did you end up choosing to pursue design over pursuing a f- career further in librarianism, if that's a term. That's <laughs> a new one. It's usually called librarianship, <laughs> but I like that, librarianism. <laughs> um, you know, I think it was just a matter of, I happened to learn 
that librarians existed before I learned that graphic designers existed. And that's why I pursued libraries. And then, because if I knew that graphic designers existed first, I would have tried to pursue that as a field to begin with. Why? Because I was very interested in doing creative work as a kid growing up. But I just didn't know how do you, how does one get a job in this area? Mm-hmm. That's, that's where I, just that, what's the word? There was just a, sort of a big gap between this is what I like to do. And then how do I, you know, you go to school presumably to get a job. Mm-hmm. My parents were not going, they were not supportive of the idea of me studying fine art. And because they thought, well, how do you get a job? What is the outcome of that? Right. Um, and I didn't want to be a fine artist, to tell you the truth. I wasn't interested in being in a museum necessarily. My parents were, not to say that because they're immigrants, but my parents were immigrants. They had low, they came to the U.S. with, you know, less than high school equivalent education. And they came here to work. And mm. that generally for them meant a lot of manual labor And they were very sort of on top of me and my siblings. You're going to go to school and you're going to get a good education so you can get a good job. So you don't have to work like this, like we do. So you say, well, I'm going to be an artist in whatever capacity, whether it's fine art, applied art. It's like, well, if I'm not producing so many widgets a day and those widgets aren't getting bought, then it's, you know, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Mm -hmm. To to my parents, it didn't make sense. And I, I completely understand that they were going to pay a lot of money for me to go to school. And it seems like going to school is so that you get trained in something in some way, whether it's training, you learn how to make something, training your how to think about something, whatever it is. And then you come out and you get a job. Right. And how to apply that way of thinking to doing something creative was just it was foreign to me. I didn't know people who did anything like that. Mm -hmm. Once I decided to go into graphic design, it was really more wanting to go back to a lot of the things that I enjoyed so much as a kid and young adult, but that I never thought was any sort of means of making a living. Hmm. And so the decision to leave libraries had a lot to do with just really specifically where I was working and not being so, not feeling appreciated, not just myself, but just a lot of the employees. For the people that I worked with, I thought I worked with amazing people, but I didn't think that the organization was being led in a really positive or even useful way for who we were trying to help. And hmm. it's, it was, it sometimes it seemed like, yeah, I was like, this is a library, right? We are trying to help people get information. <laughs> it didn't seem like that always. So it just got to be very frustrating. So tell me about that. Yeah. Like your experience interacting with archival systems, like online catalogs, how has that influenced your design approach? When I was working, I mean, even now as a librarian, I'm still a librarian. I just don't work in a library. When I go to the libraries and I need to find something and I use the, you know, their online systems to look for information, they are not, the user interface is usually not very helpful. <laughs> it's often quite difficult, <laughs> to I feel, say the least, to find things. But it is hard. I mean, it's, I understand it's difficult. Libraries have had to play catch up with technology in a lot of ways. So before the web existed, there was already sort of a funny language. There's definitely a language in libraries and archives that the normal person wouldn't understand. And you definitely bump up against that 
Hmm. Sometimes as a user, as someone trying to find information and you're faced with sort of this different language of things and you're just like, I don't understand what this is. Mm -hmm. That already exists. And then when you add that to a computer interface, trying to translate certain modes of how we have communicated to then a computer where you don't, you're not even asking a person anymore to help you find something. You're just trying to type it into the interface and hoping that you get something back. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it only makes it that much more difficult sometimes. And it's, yeah, it, it, that's part of once I figured out what design was and, oh, look at web design and user interface and all this stuff. That is part of what made me really interested in that, seeing how people struggled with using library catalogs and searching for material. And just even, even if they found the material in this catalog, even just trying to understand, you know, where is this? Does this mean this is actually in this library? Does this, you know, what does this mean? Just really basic things um, about making sense and making meaning that was becoming very difficult. I think even harder through being mediated by the computer. Hmm. But those are, I mean, those are also, you know, just huge issues of how humans communicate and understand things. It's not like, oh, it's just this one particular problem in the library world. Right. (laughs) That's all over the place. (laughs) So have you found that that experience and that lens, if you will, helps you in your freelance work? It's helped me for sure as far as, like I said before, being able to ask people what they need and what they're looking for and trying to really arrive at what they're hoping to do with whether it's, I need a new website. Okay, but what what's the point? Are you trying to sell something? Are you just trying to show your work? You know, what is the ultimate thing that you're trying to do here? Mm-hmm. So it's it's helpful, but also because I do this, when I freelance, I essentially work on my own. It can be a little bit challenging when I come up against something really, really big <laughs> and trying to figure out how to do it and who, okay, who can I tap to help me with certain parts of this, mm-hmm. that, you know, like really extensive programming challenges because I'm not a developer. I wouldn't call myself a developer or programmer. I can make a website and I can do certain things, but definitely doing really something very, very large scale would be difficult. But yeah, I don't know. I think also just the freelance world, I just very much have been figuring it out as I go. Yeah. So I definitely have in mind things that I would like to do or would be interested in working in, but I also recognize that Certain things trying to do it on my own might be very difficult because of the things that I still am figuring out how to how to do. But that's fine with me. I don't I mean, I've never taken on a project that I couldn't complete or that I didn't, you know, wasn't satisfactory or anything like that. But I also recognize there's a lot of stuff that I don't know and want to figure out. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think all of us go into freelance work just figuring out as we go. (laughs) Right. I would think it seems like it. I mean, that's what everyone that I've asked definitely have tried to pick people's brains who have been doing something that I like and just try to get their sense of how did you get to this point? And that's often like, well, when I started, I really didn't know what I was doing. Right. Yeah. (laughs) That's almost always the case. I don't know that I've ever met someone who just went into it and was like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing. Right. (laughs) Like not one. Yeah. I guess it's just that type of work, you know, but then also just the idea, like in having this conversation with you where I'm explaining why I went into um, librarianship 
and then I went into design. Um, and even now, talking about freelance, just the idea of how I value what I do and then how I try to sort of express that value to someone else who wants me to do that thing for them is really hard. I feel like that isn't something, you know, we aren't really shown a lot unless I think you go to like business school, which I really have no interest in going to. We aren't really shown how to value our work and then how to make that translate into being an entrepreneur. Right. Which I think is really terrible because when I started to do freelance work, that was I read so many things and then they're also very kind of useless things as helpful as they're trying to be about how to price your work. Mm-hmm. And there's really no real guidelines for it. Right. And on the one hand, I see, I can see why. Sure. Right. If I am, this is my first job that I'm ever going to do. And I really have zero concept of what I'm doing. Right. Why would someone pay me what they're going to pay someone who's very, very skilled at it and can do it? to, you know, with zero bumps. I can see why different rates can apply for different skill levels, absolutely. But the fact that I don't even have a concept of what I want to charge someone, like to start with, because there's no real sort of guidelines because I just haven't ever thought of that. You know, I'm used to the idea, again, of going to school and then you go out and get a job, but that that job, that person is telling you, I'm going to pay you this. Right. This will be your this will be your annual salary. And that does not translate. Not at all. Right. And that's and so that I allow someone else to set their value for me, mm-hmm. right? But mm-hmm. then when you go into the freelance world, it's kind of it's not like that. I mean, sure, there's some jobs where they might say in advance you'll be making, you know, $10 an hour. <laughs> well, and it shouldn't be like that in that right. in that setting. Exactly. So it's I remember I was I found it very kind of like, wow, I don't, how do people do this? How do people do freelance work? You know, how, how can I sort of justify what I'm asking for as far as an exchange for money? If I'm newer at this, if it might take me longer, mm-hmm. if, yeah, just, there's, you know, concepts that might seem really basic. I just remember as much as I might have read about it and as much as I talk to people about it, for me to figure it out was very difficult. Like I almost always had to sort of ask friends who were more experienced and then have them give me an idea, mm-hmm. you know, but I don't know. That just, I just found that so, it kind of blew my mind. I was like, wow, I'm so accustomed to that. My, how I get money will be based on someone telling me in advance what they're going to pay. And that I have to get like that full-time job. You right. know what I mean? That's the only way I knew about how to value any kind of skills that I have, (laughs) which was really weird. I wonder if it's even possible to, I mean, I know it's possible to help someone through that process and to maybe set up a framework or a structure that they could reference so that there's at least some guide to moving through that. Right. But I, I feel like we're the only ones who would be able to determine what that end number is or that end result. Right. Because if, right, if you're going to try to do freelance, I think it means in a way you're kind of trying to also value you, not just the work that you're making, but your time in a different way mm-hmm. than we're accustomed to. So, you know, some people might say, well, I'm, the work hours I will put in will be 20 hours per week. Like, that's it. I'm not going to work more than that. But then they can try to set a price that still allows them to make a living through that. You know what I mean? 
Right. Whereas someone else might be say, well, no, I'm willing to work such and such hours. So maybe I'll do it for less because I'm willing to work more. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it's but just- even that we are so tied to time equaling money yeah. yep. that it's That's not true. that doesn't actually value our work. Right. That's true. Because you can I can if I do a job in one hour and it's awesome and the client loves it and it's but it took me an hour and you could do it in five and we get the same outcome. Why would I make less if it's an hour? You know what I mean? If we charge the same hourly rate. I thought about that too so much when I started. I was like, what? That makes no sense. (laughs) That makes no sense to me. So I hardly ever do hourly rates. It just doesn't. I don't comprehend it. That's like kind of what I'm trying to work away from. Hey there, listeners. We've reached intermission. When I first got serious about starting this podcast, I wanted to partner with a company I felt aligned with my values and my mission. That is, a company that puts people first and believes in investing in the design community to make it a better place. Campaign Monitor is that company. They have a fantastic email marketing product and are also really lovely people. Here's a little message from them. Hi there, this is Rose from Campaign Monitor. I'd like to say how happy we are to support Below the Fold in 2014. Campaign Monitor helps designers by providing the tools and inspiration needed to send beautiful email campaigns. If you're looking for ideas for your next project, be sure to check out our top 100 email marketing campaigns at campaignmonitor.com slash top 100. Thanks so much to Campaign Monitor. And now back to the show. Is that what your biggest struggle has been? Sure, but I mean, that's sort of like the main part of it, <laughs> right? I don't, well, actually, you know what? I don't know if I would say that in and of itself has been my biggest struggle, but I actually find it very, now that I've been, I was trying to solely do freelance for about a year and a half, which I know isn't really a super long time, but I found it very difficult to just that process of constantly having to look for work. Mm-hmm. I found that to be really hard that even while I have something, you know, oh, I'm working on this and it's great. I still am constantly thinking about the next. OK, I got to get the next client. You know, I have to get the next thing lined up that I find very difficult. That part I find really, really hard. Yeah, it's hard to to flip between executing the work and procuring the work. Right. Yeah. I found that to be probably the more difficult part. It's just, again, a different way of thinking of stuff, Mm -hmm. a a different way of trying to sort of connect with people and and trying to find who needs what, but then also always thinking about, oh, maybe I could do that. Maybe I could do that for you, you know? Mm -hmm. So at this very moment, you're in the middle of moving from Pittsburgh to Chicago. Yes. What type of work do you hope to do once you're there? My perfect work would be to do lettering really forever lettering forever dot com exactly that might be yeah that might be my a new website (laughs) yeah that's what I would want to do that's what I'm trying to get a real clear handle on sort of how I can improve my skills in those areas um and work extensively in that in that field and whether it's making you know digital illustrations or typography or um, I mean I know lettering and typography are different things but I'm interested in both so yeah anything really having to do with letters do you know would be awesome. or have you heard of Sean Wes 
Yeah, yes, I have. I recently started listening to his podcast. They're really great. But, you know, freelance work can be kind of a solitary way of living. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not always. It depends, very much depends, I guess, on how you do it. But I also am definitely interested in maybe trying to find a small agency or small studio to work with. You know, I, I, I don't have anything that specific in mind, but I'm definitely um, looking at some agencies there in Chicago. So hopefully something will pan out. But either way, I know I'm going to be uh, creating still and doing my podcast still. And there'll be lots of other things that I can. Yeah, I definitely stay busy. (laughs) Tell me about that podcast and what the vision and mission are. How is it going to change once you move? So right now, uh, my partner and I have a podcast that we started doing about two years ago here in Pittsburgh called Queer and Brown in Steeltown. It really just kind of grew out of our, I I identify as a queer person of color and so does my partner. And this idea for the podcast just kind of grew out of our wanting to meet more queer people of color (laughs) here in Pittsburgh and wanting to be wanting to sort of celebrate that. I feel like there's unfortunately still, it it can be dangerous to be queer and or a person of color. Mm. Like actually dangerous physically? Sure. Oh yeah. I mean, especially in the summer, I remember last summer there were so many sad reports about trans women being beaten to death or being Mm. assaulted. And almost always a black or Latina trans woman And it's just, you know, it's horrifying that you still just can't walk around and be who you are. So, yeah, we wanted to sort of counter that. A lot of times there's a sort of maybe a sensationalized view of what a queer person of color is, especially queer Black women, I feel like. There is this kind of, this country has a long history, first of all, how they view Black folks in general, and then queer people. And then when you bring those together, there's just a, I think, a a really misguided sort of representations of queer people of color Hmm. in in the media. And so we wanted to counter that. We wanted to counter it. And we wanted to just also meet more people here in Pittsburgh because we've been, we had, we've lived here for several years and we just knew there's lots of people here we haven't met. So let's just kind of make an excuse to talk to them and just celebrate who we are and what they do. And it doesn't have to be anything like fancy that they do. They can be whoever. Mm-hmm. And if they want to talk to us, we'll talk to them. Cool. And so, yeah, it's been great. And we've, it's just, it's been really, really fun and just getting to meet new people and make new friends and uh, we post, so we record them and then we post them online on our website um, and we're on iTunes and just figuring out all that part of the world, too. Uh, we had probably did it for a year before we thought, maybe we should get this on iTunes. Like, I have no oh, idea wow. how to do that. I don't know. <laughs> so we had to figure out how to do that kind of stuff. And even just, you know, how to record it to begin with. Right. We just yeah. didn't know how to do it. So I'm sure there's some files that are way bigger than they need to be. And, you know, we've figured it out as we did it. We also didn't want to be too too worried about not knowing what we were about what we didn't know. Yeah. Just figured let's record it 
let's convert it to mp3 great we did that and let's just put it out and see what happens you know more than trying to make everything perfect and oh let's you know we can't let it all open to the public yet like we have to make this perfect and that perfect and I mean, I don't think we would have ever started it if that's the case, you know. we were, Everyone was fine with just feeling like, well, we're amateurs at this, so let's just start. The bigger thing for us was to actually talk to people and meet them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So do you feel like it's been successful in folding new people into your life and combating the the stereotypes and maybe creating a little bit more of a safe space and awareness around who you are and what your lives are like? Sure. Yeah, that's what we were hoping to do. I mean, right, there was this real sort of selfish instinct of it was to just meet more people and be more social. And, Mm -hmm. you know, for us, I mean, that was like very much for me. And I just needed to have that better connection with people here. And then there's also that sense of kind of, we want to build this archive. We want people who are normally marginalized to talk to us and tell us about whatever they want to talk to. And then we're going to share it with anyone who wants to listen. Yeah. And we also really specifically wanted to make it uh, something audio as opposed to visual as a way of, you know, listen to us. Don't Mm -hmm. just look at pictures of us because that's also, I think, pictures of queer there's lots of queer images floating around on the internet in in all their different sort of little phases, whether it's sort of, you know, oh, look at this trans person. Like, they're almost so believable. Like, a lot of sort of problematic structuring of, of, of why you're even asking us to look at something. And, and so we kind of didn't want to make it about looking at anything. Just listen. Actually listen to what we're saying. <laughs> I love thinking about how you're connecting with your audience and how you want to share your message. Mm-hmm. And given the topic and or the people delivering it being you, knowing these things about yourself and how you are perceived by the people you want to reach, I think it's so important to think about that because I honestly think there's less judgment in audio than there is mm-hmm. in video. Even though video can go viral easily and and people are more likely to watch it rather than to listen to something. Right. It's still this really intimate space. You've got your voice or I've got someone else's voice inside my ear tubes. <laughs> like right. that's, that's kind of weird to think about when you actually think about the mechanics of it. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like you get to whisper in someone's ear. So, <laughs> yeah. so what are you going to say and, and how are they going to hear that? Right. It is a. It can be pretty powerful, because right. It, the idea is that you're listening. Like mm-hmm. it's not going to work if people you and I can talk, but if no one listens to it, it's sort of. There's not to say that there isn't something about this exchange right now, that's useful, you know, and fruitful. But then if it's never ever heard ever, like and and even if someone plays it but they're not listening, yeah, it's just a really interesting sort of like. It reminds me of diaries. Like, why do people keep diaries? It's Mm. sort of for yourself in a way, but it's also, I think, something about wanting it to extend past you. Yeah, to be outside of yourself, Mm -hmm. even if it's just for you. Yeah. So, yeah, the the podcast project has been sort of... It's also still really relevant to design and library stuff that I've been doing because we're building an archive. 
that was a big part of why we wanted to do it as well. And, you know, I, as far as design-wise, I make, I've created the websites and I do, like, try to do all the little technical stuff. So that's been good sort of training in a way because mm-hmm. I can figure things out on my own <laughs> and not have to worry about how to do it later. But also on a much grander scale, like when you think of just design in the sense of not just visual communication anymore, but sort of how design can help change much more complex feelings. Mm. I was reading a really interesting book about the signage used during in the segregated South. And, you know, those signs are really powerful. Signs that say whites only, no, you know, no Negroes served here or no Mexicans served here or whatever the case was. You know, that visual signage that was doing a lot of work, obviously not by itself. There were laws in place. There were (laughs) there was really other significant structures, but. There's just a grander part that design of of environment and design of what's available and what's accessible can really impact people over a long period of time. Right. So even though it sound, might sound, you know, like, oh, we're, we're doing this to change the world. Like, yeah, that's I don't want anybody else getting killed because they're queer, you know, because they're a black kid walking down the street with a hood on. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't want anybody else getting killed and so if people just having more exposure to folks that they might consider dangerous or strange or weird can help with that then that that's and it does I think that is also a big part of why we decided to do the podcast you know I I think it's so important to remember that it is possible to change the world but to sort of zoom in all the way onto the individual and right. think only specifically about them or exclusively about that individual. Because when you change one life, you can change many. Mm-hmm. And when you select your target audience or you think about who you want to speak to specifically, then you're employing that same concept, shooting directly towards something and hoping to hit that right in the heart of it. Mm-hmm. And then creating those ripples out from there that will change more people, change more lives. Right. These small little projects, these little side shoots that we partake in, they can still have a huge impact. Even if it's on one life, you can save one life by that or change one person's mind about what people of color are like or what people of different lifestyles are like. That that is so powerful. Mm Mm-hmm. And even, and also, I mean, I think it's also important, just I want to say that as much as we're doing it to have that ripple effect, we also are doing it for, just to show our love for each other. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, if it can help some little kid in the middle of North Dakota who feels like they might hurt themselves or do something dangerous because, you know, they're struggling with feeling like, oh, being queer is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And, you know, just feeling ashamed of things, you know, there's the fact that this is on the internet, obviously not everyone has access to the internet, unfortunately, but it is 
perhaps one of the more, most widely accessible means of, of disseminating something. You know, we want people to love themselves and not feel ashamed of anything. So it's not only about changing someone's mind from acting dangerously upon someone else, but just supporting each other. Yeah. Letting that known to look, look, you're not some weirdo. You're not, there's nothing wrong, mm-hmm. you know, because that can be taken. That also has such a strong impact on not just kids, but definitely children. But, you know, if someone is, is, is coming into this sort of later in their life, it can be devastating. It's not wrong. <laughs> and you shouldn't feel wrong about it for yourself. And you shouldn't feel that someone else is doing something wrong if you are living differently. Mm-hmm. And, and, the, and just really questions of, well, what is normal to begin with? And what is... Yeah, we get into all kinds of really good conversations during the podcast, and so I'm just thinking about all that stuff. There's a lot to contend with living in a society like we have here in the U.S. and the type of history that we have and how this country was made and how people got here and how people have continued to get here and who tries to leave and when they try to leave and all kinds of things that I think are just very difficult to ignore and not talk about and have a real impact on how people live today. Even if slavery ended so many years ago, Mm -hmm. it isn't, it didn't, it didn't really end in a lot of ways. It has real significant impact on how we live still. Right. And I don't mean it in like some, like, yeah, there's just a lot. I could talk about a lot of things. (laughs) But anyway, all that is to say, I don't see, you know, there's a lot of things that are interrelated and there's a lot of things that go into how we think about what we can do and what we can't do. You know, why I find it so difficult to figure out how to charge for the work that I do, I don't think is a completely unrelated thing from a lot of what drove me to create the podcast. Mm. I think they're very... It's a lot of a lot of things related to how you view yourself and how you value yourself. Yeah. Well, self self-worth is like a key component in both of these endeavors. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Thanks so much Raquel for being on the show. I am so thrilled to be able to produce Below the Fold, and I love getting to know all of these kind and kindred women in design. What would be even more awesomer is if you were involved too. On May 1st, I'm launching Spark. It's as if an online community had a love child with a mastermind group and then named it after their passionate affair. Well, maybe that's a little weird. Anyway, Spark is for independent women in design with small businesses and big ambitions. Learn more at Pixology is Facilitating. That's pixology.is slash facilitating. Also, one more little shout out to my friends over at Campaign Monitor. I've been a super user of theirs since 2010 for two major reasons. Number one, they allow you to design your own custom newsletter themes and get this, not only implement them using a super simple markup, but manage it in an intuitive, beautiful UI. And two, you can have sub accounts to manage the custom newsletter campaigns you designed for your clients. It's brilliant. Check them out at campaignmonitor.com. Music for Below the Fold was composed by the talented Mike Edmondson, with engineering help from Rob Edmondson. Until next week, thanks so much for listening.